I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D, that's my sentence, the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D, that's my sentence, the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. This is Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM. Richmond Independent Radio, and today we are talking about the reefer revolution. That's right, y'all, legalizing it right here in the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. So on today's episode, we're going to kick it off with the race capital reframe, talking about local, national, and international headlines. And then we'll head into our interview with Mary Pryor, co-founder of Canaclusive, and Richmond's very own Chelsea Higgs-Wise, host of Race Capital and executive director of Marijuana Justice Virginia. We are here for the Race Capital Reframe with me, Kalia Harris, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and Naomi Isaac. And today in local news, we are going to start off with the eviction watch. There are 169 unlawful detainers this week, with Monday being the heaviest day. Last week, there were 122, and the week before that, 405, bringing the total in the last three weeks to 696 unlawful detainers. Just a reminder that unlawful detainers are one of the first legal steps that a landlord takes in the evictions process. As we are hearing more about the incoming wave of evictions in the new year, we must also keep an eye on the problem right here at home. In other local news, the City Council of Richmond is surveying on what do Richmond's want in a casino. Just a reminder that the Pamunkey tribe continues to confront questions about race and colorism within Afro-Indigenous members. So we will be continuing to watch the story as casinos pop up all over the Commonwealth and how that looks with COVID. Also in local news, Shamisha Sims was killed in Richmond, a transgender woman, and her family is demanding justice and answers. She was killed just three days after Transgender Day of Remembrance. In a report posted by the Human Rights Campaign, Sims' death is believed to be at least the 39th violent death of a transgender or gender nonconforming person this year in this so-called United States. As we approach the holidays and cold winter months, Blessed Warriors RVA is reminding everyone on the NPR news waves, is reminding everyone this week that people are hungry. Richmonders are hungry, Virginians are hungry, and they're not just hungry during the holidays, but they're hungry every day. So please give to the people that are directly feeding the people and continue to follow more coming out of Blessed Warriors RVA. Yeah, and we know for sure that the need is increasing. We see it too with mutual aid. Richmond, where the need has not stopped at all, and especially as the assistance from the government is dwindling, are things getting worse? On that note, new research finds that more than 400,000 COVID-19 cases and nearly 11,000 deaths resulted from evictions after many states allowed eviction moratoriums to expire over the summer. I... I'm not surprised, but I hope that the listeners and everyone are realizing the large impact that this is going to have as we are up in our houses very safely and securely and what this means for public health and public safety. Right. We don't just say eviction is murder because it's a 
catchy hashtag. It's because we know that when you put people out on the street during a pandemic with no alternatives and nowhere to provide them with clean water or the the means to quarantine, that is attempted murder. And at this point, it's actually it's actually murder, not just attempted. Yeah, and it's really sad to see the numbers confirm that for us, that over 10,000 people have died directly as a result of evictions. And there's still legislators that are playing around with sending more stimulus money or extending moratoriums when what we really should be doing is canceling rent and utilities for everyone. And in our COVID watch, there are 13.7 million COVID cases in the United States and 267,302 deaths. In Virginia, we have 240,000 cases, and we have topped 4,000 deaths at 4,093. You know, I just have to ask, what is our bar, right? Are we just comparing ourselves to other people in the so-called United States? Are we looking to realize that we're doing incredibly poorly on a global scale? This, to me, reminds me of hearing our governor on a very large platform on the radio that we trust and they were highlighting him because he's a doctor. This just worries me because we know how this doctor legislates, particularly with the racial lens and seeing these COVID cases go up and what that's happening in Virginia as we are supposed to be some type of leader is kind of scary. As the state continues to talk about stuff like casinos and things that will make more spread of the virus and we're not taking that into account. So yeah, having a doctor as a governor really doesn't do much because you still end up with over 4,000 deaths from an infectious disease that's purely preventable. In other public health news, the vaccine has made some progressions. Pharmaceutical companies Moderna and Pfizer are seeking emergency approval for their vaccines. We have seen, unfortunately, that in the clinical trials for both of these, that Black, Indigenous, and people of color generally are underrepresented in the clinical trials. Last Thursday, CBS News reported that food delivery giant DoorDash has been forced to pay $2.5 million in order to resolve allegations that claim that the corporation intentionally misled D.C. customers. Katie Gibson from CBS reported that DoorDash will pay $1.5 million in relief to delivery workers, $750,000 to the District of Columbia, and $250,000 to two local charities. So DoorDash just out here stealing money. And not paying their workers during a whole pandemic. And other cruelty, under the Trump administration, Lisa Montgomery is set to be the first woman executed by the federal government in over 70 years. Montgomery is reported to be mentally ill due to her experience as a survivor of a lifetime of sexual assault. and She was convicted of murdering a pregnant woman back in 2007. Yeah, they're on a real spree right now, the federal government. So earlier this month, Trump's administration executed Orlando Hall at the federal penitentiary in Indiana. Hall was an African-American man sentenced to die by an all-white jury. Under a new rule followed by the Trump administration, death by firing squad, electrocution, or poison gas are methods that can now be used to carry out executions for federal death sentences, in addition to lethal injection. And apparently, President-elect Joe Biden is now against the death penalty. So this has been a huge national conversation, especially, well, you know, for decades, but especially over the last few weeks after Orlando Hall and 
with all of the executions that are scheduled to happen through the end of the year. And I just find it really concerning that they have expanded to firing squads and poisonous gas. Like these are tools that like the SS used on people and it's becoming normalized again. You know, we were straying further away from using the death penalty here. So it's frightening. So speaking of this, more of the federal decision, Supreme Court has now put religious freedoms over COVID-19 safety. The Supreme Court sided with New York religious groups who were challenging coronavirus restrictions on gatherings. Justice Amy Coney Barrett played a key role in shifting the court's position in the 5-4 decision. So we are already seeing another one of 45's impact on the Supreme Court impact how we are living through this pandemic. Other federal news, a group of Democratic and Republican lawmakers just joined together to shield their corporate donors from lawsuits when they kill more workers. So if this legislation passes, it means that corporations will not be held accountable for their criminal actions during coronavirus. Y'all don't remember the story from Tyson's Chicken just a few weeks ago it would basically make it so that corporations can continue to kill thousands of workers. And remember, Virginia is number one for business and 50th for workers. We hate to see it. Out of LA, Laverne Cox was attacked this past week in a transphobic attack. She went onto Instagram Live Monday night and talked about the experience and her process with healing and restoration. But we've been seeing these attacks all year, and we need to stand in solidarity with our trans siblings and protect them when we see this violence happening. So moving on to international news, y'all. France has been going up these last few weeks. French politicians announced on Tuesday that they will totally rewrite a controversial new security bill after weeks of nationwide protests. The law would have banned the publication of images of police officers and increased police powers. On Monday, four French police officers were charged with assaulting a Black music producer while hurling racial slurs at him. And this legislation that they proposed would have made it illegal legal for videos like the video of that producer and many other videos that go viral of police violence from being posted online. Iran is blaming Israel for the death of a top nuclear scientist this week. He was killed by a remote machine gun, and this death is said to have impacts on Biden and his negotiations with Iran once he gets into the presidency. This past Friday, the hashtag MakeAmazonPay shot to the top of Twitter's trending board as workers all across the world protested Amazon and Jeff Bezos, who recently became the richest person in the world, a trillionaire, or is projected to become a trillionaire. And Amazon and other workers' rights groups began protesting the retail giant. Yeah, I'm sure them Black Friday sales had folks working in those warehouses and working to get those deliveries out like no other. Uh, Virginia has the For Us Not Amazon campaign, and I know that they were really escalating this weekend around this campaign. Yeah, workers in 15 different countries, I believe, rose up and held strikes in protests of Black Friday. And finally, out of Guatemala, there have been more protests this week as indigenous communities throughout the country are demanding the resignation of the president and a new budget. Just a reminder, they have been turning up in Guatemala 
after the president and the Congress passed a budget that included a lot of money for the legislators and very little money in COVID-19 protections for the country that suffered two hurricanes just this past month. There are now lawsuits being filed against the government and mass protests are set to continue until the president resigns. And just like we said last week, and we'll say forever, we are constantly in solidarity with the indigenous communities across the world. And that's all for the reframe this week. Thank you all for tuning in and thank you to my hosts for joining us. And now we're going to get into a pretty exciting conversation about the reefer revolution. Later on, we'll hear from Executive Director Chelsea Higgs-Wise from Marijuana Justice to talk about what's happening in terms of social equity in Virginia when it comes to reefer revolution. And you're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. And stay tuned for this reefer revolution. Hey, get it. This is Race Capital, and now we're headed into our interview with Mary Pryor, co-founder of Canaclusive. Thank you so much for being on. We have been following what's happening across the country with legalization, and this past week and last couple weeks, Virginia has said they are ready to have the legalization conversation. So we wanted to invite Black entrepreneurs, Black cannabis advocates, Black social equity voices in to say, you know, what's going on and what should Virginians be saying? So first off, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and a little bit about your work. Yeah, uh, I'm co-founder of Canaclusive. I'm also active in the industry on the hemp CBD side as a marketing for tonic CBD trickle farms. And um, on the cannabis side, I work with a few MSOs and I'm an advocate. Uh, I'm a businesswoman. I am a person that cares about all Black freedoms, not just Black freedoms for people that don't want to twerk at brunch. You know, I'm a regular, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Black girl that cares about access and access by any means necessary. So I do believe in finding ways to support the legacy market. Um, and I do believe that like cannabis should be definitely hella black because it's not and it sucks. So can I introduce real quickly? You said MSO. What is MSO? That's a multi-state operator. Okay, great. And then you just mentioned this legacy. You want you wanted to you know continue this legacy piece. What what do you mean by that? Oh, so legacy is the market that was here before the current legal market. Um, a lot of people call it um, black market and underground. And I think that's bullshit, mostly because to me, you're painting a picture of a black or brown person dealing, quote unquote, drugs, quote unquote. And that's not what's happening. So I use that because I refuse to besmirch the legacy of my ancestors that dealt with the plant or anyone's ancestors that dealt with the plant or anyone's cousin or uncle or brother or sis or aunt that has dealt with the plant into putting them into a terminology which police use to brutalize and to um, attack black and brown rights and livelihoods. So legacy market is what it is. 
Really quickly, how does abolition um, intersect with your work at all, if at all? Well, there's, oh boy. I, I think that the big thing that when we talk about abolition in general, and I hate to say this, but, you know, the slavery, it's pretty much when we talk about abolition, I want to make sure people understand we're talking about um, the abolition of a practice of, of an institution or when it comes to like anything that enslaves or utilizes like capital punishment. When we talk about the prison system. I think that in this mentality, it's, it, I view the slavery of our people in the form of the prison system. Um, I view the slavery of our system in terms of unfair wages. I view the institutionalized racism that's in this industry, which is in every industry, but particularly in this industry based upon um, the propaganda, prohibition, and the quote unquote war on drugs, which is all capped as a way to target and disenfranchise melanated bodies. So when we talk about where does abolition fit in, um, when you get down to the nitty gritty of all the different pieces of what that is, these are some of those pieces, but if we really wanna go super deep, it's still all rooted in a factor of white supremacy and desired full control over the livelihoods of melanated bodies. Hopefully that makes sense. Yes. And, and I think it's really important also when we're looking at chattel slavery and, and really genocide, and we understand the, the spirituality in connection that our ancestors used to have with this plant, and we realize the way that it's been criminalized and we've been punished, like just the lack of access to practicing this cultural, uh, something that was a cultural staple, you know, in Africa and Asia and our ancestors. It's, it's so, um, I don't know, really opens your eyes or like, yeah. I think people you know, it's, it's a covert form of genocide that we often ignore. Um, well, we should the way that still they... be doing it, right? Like, I don't, I'm my, some of my cousins ain't, haven't stopped, can't stop, won't stop. So I, I, I encourage people to understand the science of this plant, but I also encourage people to think about new ways of putting together capital to create a stake in this space. Like this is a very capital intense business. It shouldn't be, it is, so what does a co-op model look like? We should be talking about that in terms of ways that people with um, capital as an access issue to be able to like create some type of way to like go for a license. You know, what is it like to have the land that our ancestors owned or grandma owned or our aunt or our uncle owns and actually turn that into something that can be full hip for hemp crops, right? Um, I feel like that's a whole other conversation. I know we have a short amount of time left, so I don't want to monopolize all those different topics because I could be on this forever. So I know we have like a certain amount of time. No, I think that's a, a really great point of exactly what we should be thinking as the root and foundation and, and what type of language we can put in our listeners' ears for what they can think and imagine as we put our demands forth for yeah. this type of legalization. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, if you're not, you have to demand that equity is day one, aka equity day one, in everything that comes about with whatever an assembly man or woman or senator is thinking about within Virginia. If you don't, you will be screwed because the lack of equity being a day one initiative and how these bills are drafted will make it extremely hard for melanated people to participate in this industry because it will be get put to the back burner. And usually people do not go back. And when they go back, it's two to three to five to seven years later. And then you have an industry that's gone up and going. And then you have melanated people that are still getting arrested, even though you might've decrimmed and 
legalize the plant yes. in the state that you're in. And you still have an industry where there's no access for people to legally operate in this space. And there's no support for people to transition from the legacy market into the legal market in this space, which again, keeps the numbers high in terms of criminalization and then incarceration. And then you have to also keep in mind that there needs to be expungement. There needs to be funding for expungement and also pathways to work in this industry for those that have expunged records. There's no point to have expungement when someone gets out of the, on the street and there's no job. Mm. There's no job for them to be in. There's no nothing that they can do. They're like, even in general, let's just take expungement out of the framework. When someone is released from the prison system, where's the opportunities? What are you going to do? You already have a stigma against dealing with people that are formerly incarcerated already, right? So the fact that you are expunging records for people that got arrested for doing something that people make billions off of now is insane. But if people aren't talking about equity and expungement as a way to create some sense of equality in this space, which is not gonna be a kumbaya moment. Like we're still fighting for equality. Meanwhile, equity is slapped and has disenfranchised us more and more as we grow year over year as melanated people, right? So equity and expungement is extremely crucial and understanding the different levels of equity are extremely crucial. There's financial equity, there's equity in workforce development, there's equity in ownership, not being someone that becomes a customer service worker, I mean ownership. The job mm. of melanated bodies isn't to serve everybody else. It's to still be leaders in an industry that was robbed, maladapt maladaptively stolen and misshapen in front of us as a way to target black and brown people as part of a racial play against the textile war. So just yes, you are, you are touching on some great things. And I wanted to back up and just talk about this equity, especially when it comes to lawmakers. I, we know that in New Jersey voters have spoke out overwhelmingly at the ballot to legalize marijuana. And we face this in Virginia where it's like, okay, the Dems fight over this cannabis tax or these extra taxes, some kind of penalty. Can you talk to us about just your experience and what it's been like being a cannabis advocate, entrepreneur, and really, as you said, fighting for not just equity, but leadership and ownership and, and real reparations in New Jersey since that? It's, I mean, well... I'll tell you this, the intention has to be there. And if it's not there, having a legalized cannabis market with no equity, no expungement, and no taxes going back to communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs, you will end up skipped over and it will be a very, very problematic market, right? Um, you know, there should be focusing on home growth for medical patients. There should be a focus on educating people about the history of this as medicine versus a drug, because it's not a drug. So we have a whole entire campaign that's a hundred years long that black and brown people have been mostly targeted and mostly like disenfranchised against, right? You know, it's 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 big mama in them that thinks that if you have cannabis that you pretty much are having meth, right? So right. The, the distinction of that needs to be clarified greatly. But if you do not have equity, if you do not have a percentage of taxes going to communities harmed by the war on drugs, if you do not have expungement, if you do not have job training, aka workforce development, if you do not have these things in these bills and in the ears of these lawmakers and decision makers and advocates and everyday citizens, you are going to be in trouble. And in the, right. in the campaign for that needs to start now. So let me, I just want to drop you, let you know what 
Virginia has decided to do with expungements and hear your initial reaction. Um, this was proposed by the medical cannabis um, advocates that have been working with the governor. It just came out this past Monday. And it says that instead of pushing for expungements, they're actually saying that something like sealed records could be uh, a way to rectify the harms of communities the last few decades. And sealing records is something that just came into law this past year with DCRIM. And it basically says in educational institutions, landlords, as well as employers can't uh, see your record, but the prosecutor- yeah, it's, like, it's, called, it's like a vacation of record. Yeah, it's a sealed record stuff. New York was doing that before too. That's cool. But when it comes to interstate commerce, what needs to be figured out because this is still a schedule one drug. And I know, according to the Biden administration, they're considering it dropping it to schedule two or schedule three. I, I want to understand just based upon what Virginia is going to create as law, if people with sealed records are going to be able to still be able to get jobs in this industry if they choose to. So that's something that also has to be part of the language of what's being developed as well. It's also about what gets developed around the language that they're trying to further as a justification for sealing or expunging records. You know, 33 states have legalized cannabis for medical use, 14 for um, recreational use. And I think out of those 33 states, 81% of those people starting cannabis firms are white. Just could you speak to, again, your experience entering this this industry as a Black non-man and navigating that when there's just so little space for those types of identities? I'll say as a Black woman, they question how I found out about being in their circles, why I'm in their circles, how I got into the college I got into. I mean, I dealt with all of it. I've dealt with all of it in every industry I've been in, advertising, music, tech, like going to going to private school, like doesn't matter. I'll say this, you know, the optics of being black or melanated in this space around others that are not can be very annoying. I'm not going to hold you. It's super annoying, but this is medicine. And I think that, you know, for the sake of what it is to be a black woman and to at least want people like me that look like me to be so uncomfortable in this space, I've, I've been blessed to get commentary from other women that I've been, I've, I've given them strength in that regard. And that's what keeps me kind of like grounded and hopeful as I navigate spaces that are just, can be anti-Black and I will not hold you. But I don't want people to feel like, well, then I don't want to be in this. I mean, this is an everyday life. Like, you know, Biden being president won't stop the murders of Black and Brown people by the police. So, you know, you have to be prepared for being full of integrity and full of savvy and mindful that, you know, people will try you, but you just have to know how to respond to that and utilize that in your favor. That was beautiful. What is your privilege in, in this space and how are you using it to really disrupt this white supremacy hold here in this space and land? My privilege is I was lucky to have a grandmother that barely read um, and I was somebody's Arisha was looking at when I grew up because the education I absorbed is just out of nowhere. So I know that my Agun and my ancestors stand up for me very strongly. Um, and as a practitioner, I think my privilege is in having insight as a practitioner of Ifa and also just being mindful that Black women are powerful. We also have our weaknesses and we need to be honored in both spaces for that. Um, but my 
the privilege that I utilize as someone who knows what the what time it is, so to speak, is I'm just hopefully standing in the gap for somebody to jump over it. And I'm not here to be a gatekeeper. I hate that. I never liked that. I think that's trash. And like, I have so many younger, like sisters and brothers that like I work with and put on and I'm like, yo, like, just go ahead and be like, please, like, you, you got to run the race. Cause like, you know, like it's, we all have to run this race, but like, seriously, you know, the older generation, the people that are mostly politicians, um, our grandparents, our parents, you know, they have a lot of psychological trauma from being part of environments where the war on drugs hit the most. And you can't fault them for that. If I was around during the Watts riots, if I was around during the eighties, I would be who knows what I'd walk away with. And so it take making that be a sticking point to go after that generations or the generations that have been is really, really disrespectful because our bloodlines have been through so much in existing in this country called the Americas. I just say this, the privilege of being alive is a privilege, but the privilege of knowing what time it is means that you have to operate differently. And there's power in that. And there's also pain in that. But when you recognize that you have that power, you have to be able to make sure that others feel encouraged so that they can have stronger strengths to stand up for the things that you might not be able to stand up for in this life. Well, damn, you're going to have me crying. You're speaking (laughs) to me. Um, I'm so serious, y'all. Like, this is, thank you for this. And it's so true because we got to, for those that feel like they know what time it is, we do have to move different. And um, so I'm, I'm excited that you're moving right to our space and that we can amplify your voice. And I want to be able to have our listeners follow your work. How can we continue to hear from you, amplify with everything that you're going on nationally with your talks? And how, how can people continue to follow you and support you, Mary Pryor? Yeah, uh, you can go at Canaclusive, which is C-A-N-N-A-C-L-U-S-I-V-E on, the, on Instagram. Um, I am unfortunately part part of this little clubhouse thing that people be doing. I've been on it since July. So once a week, um, we're going to start doing like free advice sessions, only 60 minutes because I'm not going to be in a room for forever talking on my time out on how to like start your own business in the space. We have a conference happening on inauguration day, 1-21-2021. And it's going to be focused on what's happening across all of the East Coast and Georgia. So I'd love to reach back out and see if you'd like to represent the Virginia state of mind, if you will. Uh, but you can follow our work at canaclusive.com and please stay encouraged. This pandemic is not over. Keep, uh, keep your wits about you and be safe. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And we're headed into our interview with Chelsea Higgs-Wise, Executive Director of Marijuana Justice Virginia. Let's listen in to this exciting conversation. So we are here today on Race Capital with Chelsea and Naomi, 
and we are talking about the reefer revolution and we have you here with us chelsea and you're wearing race capital hats and marijuana justice hats as we talk about this revolution can you tell us a little bit about marijuana justice virginia and how y'all came to be so we are marijuana justice and we came to be officially last year in 2019 after the call for equity was really committed by the current administration, Governor Northam, after the very memorable Black History Month that we had in 2019, um, where many of the new equity commissions, as well as the African American Educational History Commissions were created. This came out of this promise for equity and redressing Jim Crow. Well, within all of that, what many racial justice advocates heard as we protested on the Capitol during our 400th year since trafficking Africans to this land, we heard that there was a moment and a real chance for accountability with true equity and reinvestment within our communities. The war on drugs, the fake war on drugs, was just another tentacle of um, Jim Crow, of white supremacy, of the harm that was never repaired after emancipation for our reparations. So when we realized that there was a national narrative of legalization that was happening that wouldn't be far from Virginia, especially knowing that we have Altria and Big Tobacco, and we are number one in business, 50th for workers. But what that means is we are ready to bring in revenue and corporate industry to Virginia. So we uh, came together last year in 2019. We were able to have a presence this past January where they voted to decriminalize marijuana. We also passed a resolution with Jennifer McClellan to present a JLARC study. And we did that very intentionally after we were unfortunately left out of a governor's work group study that now we have uh, two different reports that have just recently come out, but that is because a lot of our work and advocacy that happened earlier this year and marijuana justice infancy stage. So we're really excited for being able to jump in. We were not expecting for legalization to happen this quickly, but we understand that many states across the United States are legalizing because they're broke from COVID. So their intentions are not necessarily in the right place, but marijuana justice is excited to be here and, and really push for racial justice and equity in Virginia. And Chelsea, just because I know that so many people have trouble just understanding this, would you mind touching even briefly on the differences with between uh, repealing, decriminalizing, and legalization? Thank you so much for that question. Um, decriminalization is fake. <laughs> uh, the actual word of D and criminalizing means to remove the criminalization. And we are able to say that people are no longer receiving criminal penalties for possession of marijuana. So they are saying it's decrimmed, but it is still illegal to possess marijuana in Virginia. And let's be very clear about that. So when we push for repealing the prohibition, we mean removing the entire code for anything of possession of marijuana, which currently is anything under an ounce. So there would be no fines, no penalties, no, no one could give you a ticket, no one could search you for that. And that way it would also close that gateway to the carceral system that we know marijuana is. So repealing the prohibition means no more illegal anything. Decriminalization is what we have now, which is okay, we're still going to penalize 
analyze you and uh, keep an eye on you and have a way to have a gateway of overcharging you. And then legalization is actually what we're talking about with repealing the prohibition. Many people think that legalization is the commercial market. It is not. It is something completely separate. Legalization is literally just removing the illegality, which is what repealing is. So uh, they've done some really great word gymnastics with decriminalization, which has gotten everyone fooled and excited, not realizing that even with decriminalization across the country, Black and Brown folks are still uh, receiving higher racial disparities with enforcement, even with states that have legalized. Yeah, I think the ACLU have reported earlier in the year that more arrests had occurred in 2018 rather than in 2015, despite the fact that eight states had legalized by that or decriminalized by that point. Right. And and Virginia was one of the states, right? Because over the last 20 years, we actually tripled the amount of arrest for simple possession in Virginia, while many states were legalizing. So we doubled down. And when they're talking about more enforcement, simple possession might be something that is now, quote unquote, decriminalized. But we know that people are being overcharged for distribution, public intoxication or public intake, public smoking is still very illegal. So that impacts people in public housing, that impacts people without shelter. Again, who is receiving these penalties that might not be felt in a middle class world? And so, oh, it's not that bad. But actually, it really matters whether this is repealed or just decriminalized. And we're going to see what matters to legislators as they move on to a commercial market of how we're really repairing this. Not to mention, just because you don't have a financial penalty uh, doesn't mean that surveillance, probation, those types of things don't affect people. You know, that's that's still incarceration in a form. And I think a lot of people forget that. Absolutely. And it's still going to go on a record, right? It might not be something that is seen by your employer, by your landlord, or by your educational institution, but who can still see it? The cops, the judges, and the prosecutors. And that's really important to know that the judges can still see these records. Judges actually use prior records when sentencing. So yes, your civil penalty can still be used against you in a court of law if you happen to face a judge in a different sentence. So it seems like Marijuana Justice is a relatively young organization that has stepped into this conversation around legalizing it with equity. Sounds like Black folks are doing this work. It's a Black-led organization. It's quite incredible. Yeah, we're really excited to have an all-Black board. We're really excited to be working with all-Black legislators. When we entered in the General Assembly in January, we worked directly on our repeal language with Delegate Jennifer Carol Foy, who was the only public defender in the legislature. And then we also worked with Jennifer McClellan, the senator, who worked on our equity bill. So we had right there the repeal and the equity by two Black women that were able to be brave enough to bring this to the legislature. So when we're talking about people that have been involved in this, don't allow folks to say, well, it's been these main legislators, folks that you might hear more medical marijuana. No, there have been intentional players here, at least in the last year and a half, that deserve some credit and and realization of, of who's bringing this in here. And we may be young, but our experience is not young. We are connected to many organizers that have been doing this for a long time, and we are blessed and very privileged to be able to be informed and connected to folks um, that are continuing to feed our learning and, and resource us and support us. So uh, we are young but mighty. 
And I also want to shout out the fact that what really drew me to marijuana justice is that there's so many Black queer people involved in the project. And I think it gets lost upon people the way that queer people, trans people are most affected by marijuana criminalization. Because when you talk about houseless folks, when you talk about sex workers, you know, the, the cops are always looking for an additional charge to throw on those people or for a reason to come up to those people and bother them. Yeah, I just think it's really, it's really dope to see, uh, no pun intended, to see uh, queer Black folks at the forefront of this. Yeah, and shout out to Rebecca Keel, who was right there with me in the very beginning stages of this, and their drug substance policy education and background was a huge input to this. And to be very honest, we have to have our own space for this. And that was something that was really intentional. And because we are so rooted in an abolition mindset, how who else would be leading that type of work? Right. And so song has been uh, a huge impression for us. Um, there have been partnering with the Movement for Black Lives. So on the Marijuana Justice Instagram account, which you can find at THC Justice Now, you can visit our link tree and you can see the different links that have the Defund the Police Toolkit, the Reparations Now Toolkit, and the ACLU national data that really talks about the criminalization and why we need to repeal this. So you can see the type of narratives that we are standing in and our partners and that we're still working locally with the song chapter on some fun stuff that we can talk about a little bit later. Um, but you're absolutely right, Naomi, that this feels very different. Um, but I think that's why we need to let people know it's going to it's gonna look different. But that's maybe why we need to give this a try, right? After 400 years, we got to do something different. When I was at the General Assembly this year with Chelsea, led by Chelsea, you know, advocating for marijuana justice, I really, really picked up on these different, the different tonality happening in that building. You know, there's uh, one from the medical marijuana industry and there's other, another narrative of racial equity. What are your thoughts, Chelsea, on how these narratives are playing out right now in so-called Virginia? You know, it's, it's not just the narratives that's playing out, it's our very experience, right? Because before we even started marijuana justice, we did our research of who was in this space and we just saw a, a lot of medical marijuana people. And that was the only real narrative, the only real push in advocacy. So when we entered in the general assembly, I'm going to be very honest, we were naive and we were thinking, oh, you know, the medical marijuana shouldn't have much resistance to this, this recreational adult use. Well, boy, were we fooled. <laughs> um, and so what I've found out since January, because I am learning every day, that this two-story narrative is very common across the United States in the marijuana field as we are looking to legalize. And it is very much the medical industry that has usually set up some type of shop prior to the adult use that then comes in and says, we should also be the people making the decisions about how adult use looks. And that usually means that the people that were impacted by the prohibition and enforcement of marijuana are not going to be included. Medical marijuana is mostly by rich white guys. And it's why across the nation, we've only produced less than 4% of African-American ownership 
in this industry when our guests put it so beautifully about a legacy market when those in the legacy market are now being pushed out of the the generational wealth that we've been able to bring to our families by saying that we're championing some type of legalization. It is absolutely two narratives. It's still all under a democratic tent, but it's really going to be interesting for folks to to see that is this just about legalizing a plant or is this truly about legalizing it right with racial justice and social equity? And I think about like big pharma and the way that the medical industry already works and the dangers of going that route and taking their lead. I think there's a lot of dangers that you kind of speak to here that come with that when you let the white men and medicine do what they do the public health industry is still undoing those harms we need to be careful about all of these narratives because we know that the white medical establishment has never looked at black health as a priority they're complicit in actually making criminalization and the so-called war on drugs effective through their racist studies through even the ways that they even still talk about smoking when they go when you go to the doctor and they ask you do you smoke marijuana as a black person so i i really just think about the dangers of of how medical marijuana will play out and for black women right with chronic diseases and how they will get prescribed the marijuana and so when we talk about racial equity being like the first step to legalization or to any of this work in Virginia, I think even in that medical marijuana narrative, is there going to be a true need for racial equity? It's going to have to be. And we're seeing it with people that want to talk about veterans. We're seeing it with people that want to now, everybody wants part of this business, right? And we've got to always go back to who, who was impacted the most, and, and that's who we, we should be centering. And that's indigenous people, that's black people. That's why we have the word marijuana. That's a racist term, but that is the only term that's actually outlawed in cannabis, right? And that's why we've intentionally named our organization Marijuana Justice to bring justice to that name. Um, being able to recognize when folks are coming in and might have a stake in it, but not nearly should be taking up the space that we should. And Again, let veterans get their their due. I think veterans would be do great under a medical model because they do uh, receive medical care and have a VA a VA set. That would make sense to me. But for me, it really is about that repeal, repairing, which has to be expungements and then reparations of what that looks like here in Virginia, but of course across the nation. For me, it really takes me back to affirmative action and the way that every time Black folks start talking about what we didn't get. Now we got to start up talk, start talking about everything that everybody else didn't get. And it, it, it can be so frustrating because even with affirmative action and the reason that it failed is because there becomes this focus on inclusivity in, in a figurative sense and not actually including the voices that have been left out time after time after time. And like even now when we see people talking about people who are going to get licenses to enter the market and be allowed to participate, we see people talking about women. And I'm like, okay, but which women? And we know that right now that out of all the states that have uh, legalized marijuana, a majority of the people who are involved in the cannabis industry are white. So we know that white women aren't gonna get their share regardless. So the fact that we always tend to dilute this conversation is really ironic because they act as though their intention is inclusivity when it's really trying to get us to shut up and not talk about the fact that we're receiving less. And that's Naomi why it's gonna be so important that we 
specifically define who the social equity applicants are, as well as the disproportionately impacted zones or the impact zones. These are the areas across the Commonwealth of Virginia that have been particularly hit hard by the prohibition of marijuana through um, more arrests in those areas. And so looking at these areas and, and defining who is able to be eligible and making sure that gentrified Johnny, you know, that just got here in an area isn't able to get this money that's meant for social equity. It's not the employer that happened to hire X amount of Black people that gets this. I tweeted the other day that coming up and telling me that you are the perfect Black candidate for a marijuana license and business is not the flex you think it is. I really don't want to encourage this token narrative of who gets to be in the business based on a clean record and I was this and look how perfect my resume is. We need to actually be working hard to create spaces for the same nigga that you hit up now for weed. I want to make sure that nigga can also be selling weed. But actually, like this dichotomy between medical and recreational that is a tool of the system to get us to, to continue to criminalize certain people for the way that they produce cannabis in a cultural sense, in a way that's always been, uh, you know, like, just think about your uncle from the block and the way that he's always paid his bills and like saying that he and what he is doing is worse than what a CEO is sitting, you know, or like someone at Altria is doing while they're trying to get into the cannabis industry. It's all a tool of the system, the way that they label things from whether they call it marijuana to whether they call it medical marijuana to whether they call it recreational use. This is all BS. Chelsea, Marijuana Justice Virginia talks a lot about legalizing it right. What does that mean for you? So I have six main points or values that I really want to talk about and legalizing it right that people can remember. Number one, we need a policy centered around racial justice because marijuana enforcement is racially biased. It's a policing issue. It's not going to go away. You can't reform it. So we need a policy centered around racial justice. Number two, repeal marijuana prohibition and remove all the penalties now. This cannot wait. Period. I'm talking about simple possession for less than an ounce. Repeal it. Number three, we cannot criminalize our youth. Something I didn't talk a lot about was we were battling the majority Democrats earlier this year about putting harsher penalties on youth that are caught for marijuana when we are decriminalizing it for adults. When across the nation, research shows us that by legalizing marijuana, it does nothing to increase the use of youth use. So penalizing them more is literally just building up their youth incarceration profit dollars on our black and brown youth. So no, stop that. Why did you even have to fight them on that? That's ridiculous. When you say fight, it was a fight. I said it's for profit and that's literally what it is. We have to understand that even youth prisons bring in a profit and they have to be able to say that there is public safety risk. And if they're able to do that with youth and they're able to put money into police. And that is exactly what our medical industry and our main street cannabis advocates are doing with their 500 page report that came out this week is that they are suggesting money to law enforcement. In fact, more money to them than to social services. Okay, let me get back to my point. But yes, no criminalizing youth. No new crimes, okay? 
Number four, no new crimes. They tried to put in a public smoking crime. They tried to put in a smoking while driving crime that was harsher than an open container for alcohol. Y'all, they are ready to make marijuana crimes to continue to lock us up. This is a formation of the new drug war. No new crimes. Number five, repair the harm done due to previous marijuana enforcement through full expungements and removal of marijuana possession convictions and not the sealing record stuff. If you hear people saying seal records, that's what I mean. They want to just say, oh, the collateral consequences are taken care of. That means like your housing, your school, your employer. But the actual people that were creating the harm, which are the judges, sealed records means they still get access to judge you. So what is an expungement? An expungement would, ideally, an expungement would mean that your record is erased, Now, unfortunately, here in Virginia, the records are not even destroyed, so we don't even really have full expungement. I will say that that is something that I'm seeing, particularly Jay Jones might be working on this to push this. But ideally, it would mean that then no one would be able to see your record and hold that against you. There is an interest in being able to still see Black people's prior records for the carceral system. And that's what the current cannabis advocates are maintaining with their recommendations. And so the point of them keeping the records or their desire to keep the records is so that they can still put harsher charges on Black people because of the records? Not just charges, convictions. So I'm really hoping that public defenders can come out on this to say that priors on your record are actually used as part of the formula for your sentencing. So if you ever get caught up again, having a sealed records is going to be used against you. Having an expungement, it will not. And we know that who who's going to have the most priors, right? Who is the sealed record is going to impact the most? The same people that were impacted by prohibition. So if we're really trying to redress any harm, a sealed record is a joke. And I just want to say this has a lot of impact on things like pre-trial. When we're talking about folks being incarcerated before they've actually been convicted of a crime or getting out cash bail, all that stuff, like pre-trial, this is where this really plays a huge, huge impact. And so again, really focusing on surveillance state tactics is a huge part of the way that we analyze the way that we're moving with marijuana justice. Surveillance. You hit it right there. And and the last part I will say is that reinvest in communities most harmed by marijuana enforcement. And that's why we push the equity first, because if these folks ain't free off their records, then they're never going to be able to actually apply for these licenses and, and be able to be to partake in any of this. And, and in fact, if you want to talk about sealed records, if the federal government Y'all want to champion Biden. If they actually did something with the legalization of marijuana, these sealed records would not allow folks to participate in a federal market through banks. These records would need to be expunged. So we're already creating barriers to where if this country expands on cannabis, many people will not be able to engage. Way to go. Very people who are the most experienced at the industry are already barred at the door from participation in it legally. This goes internationally because we have to think about the way that they continue to try to push some way to incarcerate somebody over this issue. When they start to focus just on the black market, you know what that means? That means Latin America, that means Colombia, that means Afghanistan, that means Iran, as they already have done time after time. And so when we talk about legalizing it right, that's also 
not forgetting that everything that we do here, even if it's just in so-called Virginia, even if it's just in so-called Richmond, you know, these have lasting impacts on the way that when we move state by state, as we move into a federal strategy, if they don't get to incarcerate any of us and we still leave all these like loopholes in, they will incarcerate somebody in the global South. Yes. We cannot decide to fight for incremental change on legalization. If we allow for this legalization bill to pass and think we'll just fight for equity later, we will have failed. I need you to say that again, Chelsea. Say it again. We cannot. We cannot just be complicit with incremental change with marijuana legalization. If we do and we say, we'll work it out later and bargain and pitch a deal and trade. I would rather turn down every legalization proposal and work on expungements and repair for years before we create a market to allow people to make millions and billions of dollars off of this. Incremental change will never happen if we allow this to pass now. I wanna remind people that that's not how reparations work. The oppressor does not get to negotiate. This is not a negotiation. You owe me. You owe me. And like, that means that you listen to the people that are harmed and we get to decide the way that you pay us back. And like, even here in Virginia, that means white men that are trying to take credit for the work of Black women who have been Black women, Black queer people who have been on the front lines of this work and doing it in our state. Like, you know, I'm scrolling on Twitter seeing all these white men trying to get clicks and tweets, retweets for their fancies for legalization. But Governor Northam basically just said that he's open to hearing about legalization. And he got a million and five pats on the back when it's been Black women doing this work all along. And when did he even introduce the idea to being open? Someone tell me, because I forgot the historical moment and event that led to him being open. Was it the COVID crisis of our state? It seems to be the pattern with Democratic leaders across the country that, oh, now it's okay to legalize because we're going to do it the wrong way and take all the revenue. And, you know, I think you hit a really good point, Kalia, about Governor Northam said he decided to hear bills now on legalization because many people believe that legislators can draft bills, propose them, then people, you know, they decide on them and, and, and discuss them on the house floor and things but that's not how it works the the top down decides what they'll even hear on the floor and so now what he basically said is that now you are even we're even allowed to discuss it in the general assembly so thank you uh, governor northam for now saying we are allowed to talk about it but what i'm really interested in is are we going to allow to actually have language for racial justice and social equity and are they going to give folks credit because we're going to be the ones to inform them on doing it the right way right that's really my scare of course i do want people to understand how much work and labor myself and other folks have been doing on this but it's also going to be important to me that you understand that we have the answers. We have a lot of the recommendations, even if they're not perfect. And if we're not in the room when we're doing this, then we're going to get it wrong. If we want an equitable outcome, so must be the process. And so far, Virginia has committed to an inequitable process. They wanted to trickle down from the medical marijuana industry to us. But I think like what Chelsea's saying, basically, if your end goal is not to have money in the hands of Black folks, you're doing it wrong. Earlier, you were mentioning a JLARC study that y'all were working on, and you also told us that the governor put out a 500-page study 
And so what is going on with these two studies and how did, how is that already working out? Great question, Kalia. So right now we have two different studies, essentially have come from two different parties informally, the racial justice sector and then the mainstream advocates that are connected closely to the medical industry. The medical marijuana folks released a 500-page report from the governor's work group. I will say I tried to get on that work group. They didn't let me on. I've been following their meetings the last few months, and I'm not surprised by this atrocious report that was put out that gives more money to cops, that talks about stealing records as a way to rectify decades of harm that uh, talks about home grow as being dangerous because the lights could catch fire. The overall narratives are really offensive and they they say very distinctly within these meetings if you listen to them the YouTube videos are online they're in the SoundCloud description of this episode and you can hear them say they must not dismantle what has already been built in the medical marijuana and I don't want to go into the weeds on this but when I tell you that the medical marijuana industry that we have set up here in Virginia is the most corporate like the most top down way you could ever legalize anything that's what Virginia did. And so they are very protective over that model. And and if you're interested in the group members of the work group, you can also find those members, the link to that here in this episode description. And yeah, there were cops on there. <laughs> there are public health officials on there. Uh, I'm going to tell folks that's probably not surprising if you follow General Assembly that Brian Moran is heavily involved in the legalization conversation. And many advocates across the country have said things, quote, we had to pay cop- cops off in order to legalize marijuana. That's why so much of this marijuana revenue is going to cops across the country in states like Arizona and Oregon. And now it looks like Virginia too. And then what's the second study? And then the other study that I would like to lift is the JLARC study. Is it an, it is an independent study that came out on November 16th, actually my birthday. And that was the first time Governor Northam decided to talk about legalization, probably because the study came out with over 70 recommendations and two chapters specifically on racial equity and proper expungements. That JLARC study is the one that told us that over 120,000 Virginians could be eligible for an automatic one-time expungement um, with these changes, right? I mean, it gives us real data. It tells us also this JLARC study that it may be more costly for Virginia to invest in actual communities, but the benefit will outreach any other option. We will literally have the most beneficiaries out of this industry if we do it that way. So we need to not be scared about the cost of this. We're about to make millions and millions and millions of dollars. And um, so when we're looking at the two studies, I want folks to realize that it's not on purpose that we have two studies. Okay. One is a work group of Virginian appointees talking amongst themselves about how they want to do it. And the other one is an actual research independent group. Okay, that Black legislators and Black advocates push to have. So it's going to be really interesting about which recommendations make it into bill language. So what's next, Chelsea? Going into 2021, what what can we do? And what should we look out for? Things are moving really quickly, y'all. I'll tell you what, but some dates to put on your calendar are December 17th and January 18th. January 18th is also MLK Day. Um, 17th is going to be a pre-General Assembly launch, like GA one-on-one. Uh, Brown, Virginia is hosting that. Marijuana Justice is going to be a part of that. This is a good opportunity if you're just unsure with how the Virginia General Assembly really operates 
feel free to come in, ask some questions. They do some real Virginia stuff on purpose. So it's complicated on purpose. Um, so we'll have some good conversation there about what GA is and what to look forward to. And then on January 18th is actually going to be a virtual lobby day starting at 9 a.m. until about 1.30. And you'll be able to talk to legislators, you'll be able to talk to organizers and really hear about the actual issues that are coming about. Um, and if you remember last year, that was the day that the white militia ascended on the Capitol and took over our usual lobby day. So this is going to be something different and safer <laughs> online since Virginia allowed that to happen and put us all at risk. But those are two dates to absolutely look forward to. And also please just subscribe to Marijuana Justice at our website, marijuanajustice.org and to all of our social media accounts. Please follow us, THC Justice Now. We will be having conversations coming up very soon from now until General Assembly and through General Assembly and also moving forward. So we are growing and asking for your support. I'm wearing my marijuana justice hat right now. So please, as you are looking to support organizations, this is really important work for all of us. And we could use your dollars and volunteer and your voice to share as we are moving forward. Yes. So it sounds like the reefer revolution is going to have some repealing, some repairing and some reparations for black people. <laughs> yes, y'all. Talk to your family, support your plugs, and stop giving money to VA normal. Look, y'all, follow Marijuana Justice, support Black-led cannabis work here in the Commonwealth. All right. Well, this has been Race Capital, and you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Catch y'all next week. Yes. Yes. Be sure to listen to us next week. 